the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. There are many lesser-known parks and historical sites in the national park system that provide not just stunning landscapes, but interesting glimpses into American history. This is Lynn Riddick, your host at National Parks Traveler. This week, the Traveler talks to our own editor, Kurt Repenshek, who is exploring a number of these lesser-known spots in the heart of America, Nebraska and Kansas. I'll be back with Kurt in a minute to hear more about his travels. Since 1986, National Park visitors have turned to the best-selling guidebook, Passport to Your National Parks, to collect fun ink stamps from each of their explorations. Just take your passport book to any National Park Visitor Center or park store and get your free ink stamp with the date and location of your visit. Personalize your passport even more by adding stickers, logging your favorite hiking trails, and mapping your next adventure. You can also show off your love for our national parks with passport-themed apparel and accessories. Best of all, 100% of proceeds from the Passport program support your national parks. Stamp your passport as you capture stories, preserve memories, and discover America's natural and historical treasures. Soar with Interior FCU. Learn about the different rewards programs Interior Federal Credit Union has to offer, like Nickelback Rewards, Member Rewards, and Purchase Rewards. Explore how you can start saving today at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier. North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. We all aspire to leave a legacy of good, right? One way or the other, our parks and public lands are all of our legacies. Join Wild Tributes for the parks community with apparel that pays tribute to where legacy roams. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. Join us at wildtribute.com. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smoky's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. At National Parks Traveler, we've made a pledge to try to raise the profile of some of the lesser known units of the park system. And today I've got Kurt Repenshek on the line. He is the Traveler's intrepid editor, and he's actually on the road this week in Nebraska, checking out some of these lesser known units of the park service. So Kurt, hi, nice to talk to you. Um, I understand you're gonna talk a little bit about your most recent trip to Scotts Bluff National Monument in Western Nebraska. Hey Lynn, how are you? You know what, I'm having a great time. I mean, aside from all the windshield time on the interstates, which is not fun at all, there's a lot of truckers out there, there's a, a fair amount of uh, uh, rigs pulling uh, fifth wheel trailers, so not everybody is uh, being dissuaded by $5 a gallon gas, um, but, um, 
you know, it's a great time of year. I mean, even though there's a heat wave going on, I guess it could be worse. But um, the parks aren't full up yet, and so um, a lot of elbow room out there. And being able to get out into um, flyover country, as they, they call it, you know, I, I think some people forget that there are units in the national park system in places like Nebraska and Kansas and Iowa. And um, it's been a lot of fun. It's, it's opened my eyes because there are uh, some parks I've never been to. I've written a lot about them, of course, but I've never been to them. And I'm just having the time of my life. Well, that sounds great. So tell us a little bit about Scott's Bluff. When did you get there and what did you see? You know, I, I left my, my home in northern Utah. Um, and you drove all the way from Utah. Yeah, yeah. And it was just a short drive. I think it was only about eight or eight and a half hours. I mean, for, for somebody like you who drives across the state of Texas to get to Big Bend, I mean, this was just, you know, a short drive. <laughs> but um, I, I got into to, uh, Scotts Bluff Sunday evening. Um, there was uh, some thunderstorms moving by that uh, cooled things down a little bit. And then I spent uh, all day Monday and uh, part of uh, Tuesday morning at the National Monument. And um, it, it's really fascinating. And for, for people who've never been there, the calling card is the, the Oregon Trail went through the land that today is preserved by the National Monument, a place called Mitchell Pass. And it goes right up. In fact, there's a state highway that goes right through, bisects the National Monument, right over the pass that the, the, the covered wagons and the Conestoga freight wagons went, you know, a hundred and some years ago. And it's a fascinating landscape. I mean, you've got the, the dramatic bluffs of, of western Kansas, and uh, the North Platte River is just to the north of the monument. And, of course, the, the, the Oregon Trail and the Mormon Trail, uh, immigrants wanted to stay close to the river, obviously, for that water that uh, their livestock needed, and they needed as well. And um, in talking to the superintendent, he said that, and, and he, he put it accurately, Scott's Bluff is not your final destination on a national park trip, but it can be a destination, you know, because there's some rich American history there that is, that is uh, described and interpreted by the, the park service there. Did you see uh, a lot of visitors there? Was it pretty empty? And what's visitation like typically there? You know, it, it, it's ebbing and flowing um, right now. It's it's an interesting park in that it, it opens um, shortly after sunrise and closes at sundown. They've got an entrance station, but they don't charge a fee. They've got um, some very uh, extroverted uh, park rangers in the visitor sta- station there, in the entrance station. And so you stop there, and they, they chat you up, and they answer any questions you might have. The, the visitor center opens, uh, I believe, at 9 o'clock in the morning, 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. And it's a small visitor center, um, but it's, it's got some really fascinating exhibits about, you know, the Oregon Trail and, and the great immigration to the West. And one thing I, I found um, interesting, a little, a little um, sneak preview of um, the stories that I'm going to write, is William Henry Jackson... I mean, a lot of people might have heard, I mean, people who are interested in Western history no doubt heard of George Gatlin, the Philadelphia wannabe lawyer who decided to throw the law to the side and went out west and became an artist and captured all these beautiful scenes of, uh, you know, Native American tribes and whatnot. And, and Gatlin was the first one who floated the, the idea of a, a, a national park, although his idea of a national park was kind of 
bizarre. Um, he wanted a place where, you know, the Native Americans would live and you'd still have all the wild animals and kind of like a strange, strange zoo type setting. But everybody seems to know George Gatlin and very few people know William Henry Jackson. And what's fascinating about Jackson, he lived to 99 years old. And he got out west after the Civil War by becoming a bullwhacker. And a bullwhacker was basically the the driver of these Conestoga wagons or the, the, the covered wagons. And, you know, he would be responsible for, you know, getting the, the oxen in the morning and, and hooking them up to the Conestoga wagon, which was the larger of the two wagons and used for hauling freight and whatnot. And um, he didn't like that too much. Um, it was a really rough job and um, the pay wasn't that great and you could get injured. But he actually camped at the National Monument and uh, you can go up to where his campsite was approximately. But so he started doing that after, after the Civil War and he went on to become this incredible photographer. He was with the Hayden Expedition that went into Yellowstone uh, country back in 1871 and he took a lot of the pictures there, uh, photographs there that went back to Congress along with the artworks by Thomas Moran that convinced Congress to create the National Park, Yellowstone. He photographed Grand Teton. He photographed Mesa Verde and, you know, all these famous places in the West. Self-taught guy. And can you just imagine, I mean, you and I, we go to a park setting. We take a picture. We look at it in our camera. We think, no, that's no good. Let me try it again. And you take it again, or you might take it three times. He's out there working with these glass slides that he'll take an image and you know who knows if he would develop it you know right there on the scene or if he had to wait till he get back east but there's like no second second chances and he's lugging these these glass um, um, slides around and they're rather large into the Tetons through Yellowstone just fascinating individual and then somewhat later in life he decided to, to paint a lot of the scenes that he had experienced as a younger man. And so if you go to Scotts Bluff National Monument, they've got some of the, his beautiful artwork on the, on the walls in the visitor center. Um, the, the monument actually is the, the repository of the William Henry Jackson collections. And it's not just paintings or photographs. I mean, he traveled the world. He, he went to Egypt. He supposedly you know, has letters from the president of Egypt, from the president of the United States, medallions, pins, and whatnot. Just a fascinating man, and I'm really looking to, to learn a lot more about him as I, as I research this story and, and try and create a good picture of who this gentleman was and what he accomplished and, and how it relates to the National Monument. Sounds interesting. So going back to um, Scott's Bluff and the Oregon Trail, any idea of how many people were passing through there at one time? Um, was it pretty much a main route on that sort of northern uh, route across the U.S.? It was the main route, and I've actually um, stumbled across two numbers, and I've, I've got to um, fact check them. Um, one, I was told that over the course of uh, the Oregon Trail's use before the Transcontinental Railroad came into being, 500,000 people had used it. And then I thought I, I, I read someplace either 350 or 390,000. So um, really need to um, fact check that and come up with a, a good figure. But, you know, either one is huge. 
you know, that range between 350 and 500,000. When you think about how many covered wagons was that, you know, and a lot of these people were walking because they didn't want to overburden their, their livestock that were pulling these wagons. And you can, you can stand there in Mitchell Pass, you know, watch the cars zoom past you and just try and imagine all these covered wagons coming through. And it was a, a condensed season. You know, they had to time it right leaving Missouri, you know, to um, wait for the, the prairie to start greening up so their livestock would, would have some forage that they could eat. But at the same time, they didn't want to wait too long and run into the snows in the Rocky Mountains and be doomed by that. So um, it, it's really, really quite fascinating. And it's, it's interesting. When I was there, there's a, a short trail one of the iconic settings of the National Monument is that they have these three wagons out front heading towards the, the pass, the notch in the pass. And the one in front is a Conestoga wagon, the big freighter, so to speak. And it's got six fiberglass, um, full-size fiberglass oxen pulling um, the Conestoga, in theory. And then they've got two, two covered wagons behind that. And um, everybody takes a picture of that up against, there's a uh, a prominent bluff behind it. I, I believe it's called Eagle Eagle Mountain um, or Eagle Rock, and that's that's very prominent. But there's a trail that that takes you past these um, these wagons up to where um, the location that uh, William Henry Jackson camped out at when he was a, a bullwhacker coming through. And so it's it's just a short walk, you know, maybe a half mile one direction. A very easy uh, path to follow, and uh, I walked up there, and you know, you just kind of close your eyes and try and imagine, you know, what it was like when he came through, and then you know what it was like when all these wagons were coming through, and how how rough the landscape was. You can see some of the swales that were created by all the wagon traffic. It's not like um, at Guernsey, Wyoming, where you've got these deep, deep ruts cut into the limestone from all the the wagons, these are, are gentler swales that are filled in somewhat, um, but you can still see the paths. Yeah, that's interesting because you, you can't help but wonder how very difficult it was to haul your family, your whole belonging, all your belongings, and be worried about food and water every day and just do that day after day after day as you made your way westward. Yeah, it's incredible. And you know, talking to the, the interpreting staff there, they got to Scott's Bluff. They got to this notch in the in the bluffs, and it was the end of the prairie. Before them um, was the Rocky Mountains, and so on one hand, hey, we made great progress, and like, oh my goodness, now look what we've got to cross. Right, and it's the just daunting Rocky Mountains. Yeah, and you know, a lot of them from Scott's Bluff, they went up to, to Fort Laramie, where uh, Fort Laramie National Historic Site is in eastern Wyoming. And when they got there, a number of them realized that, you know, we've got too much junk. You know, we can't carry all this stuff. And so they, they tried to sell it at Fort Laramie or they discarded it along the trail. You know, they might have realized we need, you know, this, or we need that. And so Fort Laramie was kind of a, a place where they could reprovision you know, they would take a few days to, to rest themselves as well as their livestock and get rid of stuff they didn't need and, and buy stuff that they thought they needed. So it, it's just this dramatic period in American history that um, is fascinating to, you know, spend a day kind of walking in the path of where they went and, and seeing the landscape. 
you know, you can go over to the North Platte River. Um, you'd have to drive over there. You can't walk there from the monument, although I suppose you could, but you wouldn't want to. It's probably five or six miles. And the North Platte River is just this thin, muddy stream. <laughs> and I, don't, I just don't know how they drank it. Um, obviously, you know, put it in a bucket and let it settle, settle out overnight, but still not fun. But one of the things you can do there, aside from, you know, walking up, through the notch to where um, William Henry Jackson camped out was there is a, a trail to the top of uh, Saddle Rock. And um, they've actually built a road that goes up there. And not only is it the, the highest road in Nebraska, which is a pretty flat state, I can attest to that, having spent the last 28 years in the Rocky Mountains and driving out across Nebraska, it's definitely flat. But it's got three tunnels and apparently it's the only road in Nebraska that has three tunnels that you pass through. So anyway, you can you can drive up this road. It's about a mile, mile and a half to the top. And there's a nice little parking lot there. And there's a, a number of trails that lead you um, across the top of this Saddle Rock um, promontory. There, there's ponderosa pine up there. There's some junipers. There's some wildflowers. It's really pretty cool. And you get up there and you get a, a great view of the surrounding landscape of Scott's Bluff the town of Scotts Bluff just to the north, um, Gearing, Nebraska, just a little bit to the east. And off in the distance in the east is Chimney Rock, which was a, a very famous landmark that the, the Oregon Trail um, immigrants um, focused on as they were going west. And then, you know, once they passed that, I guess they kind of focused on Scotts Bluff. And when they got to Scotts Bluff, 120 miles to the west is um, Laramie Peak, which is a very prominent peak in eastern Wyoming. But um, there, there's a few trails up there on top of the Saddle Rock, which gives you some great views around. And you can actually hike up there from the visitor center. There's a footpath that you can hike all the way up and obviously turn around and hike all the way down if you want, if you have the time. Really, really pretty cool stuff. And it's unfortunate to people who either just, uh, you know, stop at the visitor center and st- stamp their um, passports to the parks and uh, look around and take a picture of the Conestoga wagon with the oxen and, and drive on. It's really kind of interesting. Any idea where the name Scott's Bluff came from? It's, um, it's interesting. Um, back in the fur trading days, there was this um, group of men, and um, one of them went by the name Hiram Scott, and he became sick or wounded or, or something or other, and um, he couldn't keep up with his companions. And so he said, well, just leave me over there by those bluffs and, uh, you know, save yourself or whatever. And, and he passed away. And sometime later, somebody came upon him, and they found this rather large skeleton. And Scott was known to be a, a large man. And so they figured that those were the bones of Hiram Scott. And so Scott's bluff, that's... That's the urban legend um, going around the monument. <laughs> That's interesting. Anything else we want to say about Scott's Bluff? It's a wonderful place in American history, in Western expansion history. And um, it's definitely worth a visit. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. And the, the one thing that was kind of frustrating, as I as I'd mentioned, you know, the monument is the repository for William Henry Jackson's memorabilia, his paintings, his photographs, the memorabilia that he collected over his lifetime. And as most people know, what you see in a museum is usually only 10% or 8% of the entire collection. And that's certainly the case um, at Scott's Bluff. 
Interestingly enough, the bulk of the collection is kept over at Agate Fossil Beds National Monument, a little bit to the west. Right, uh, not Scotts. too not too far from Scotts Bluff. No, not not too far at all. But um, anyway, it's stored over there, and so um, I don't know how much is is on display, if any of it, over there. But I'm I'm planning to get to Agate Fossil Beds later this summer, um, and uh, and I'll let you know. I'll let you know what I see. So from Scotts Bluff, you drove six hours to Beatrice, Nebraska, uh, on the other side of the state. What did you find there? You know, it's it's um, a quaint little town um, south of Lincoln, the, the state capital. Homestead National Monument, you know, again, I've, I've written quite a bit about it. I've never had the chance to visit it, and um, it's a fascinating place. And, you know, you, you're catching me on the, the first day that I've been at Homestead, and um, I've, I've spent about four or five hours there. I'm going to go go back um, after our conversation is over with. It's fascinating for so many different reasons. I mean, it's a beautiful pastoral setting. You know, coming from the southwest, the dry and arid situation, you come here to, to Homestead National Historical Park, and um, everything is green. Everything is lush. There's tall grass prairie here. There's there's rivers here. It's It's wonderful. But... It's so much more than a pastoral setting. The monument is located here at Beatrice because Daniel Freeman, a gentleman from Illinois, was the first to take advantage of the Homestead Act, which um, passed in 1862, passed Congress in 1862, and it took effect on January 1st of 1863. And rumor has it that Daniel Freeman was the very first person to take advantage of the Homestead Act, which allowed Americans to claim 160 acres, and they would get it for free if they could live on that 160 acres for five years and improve it. And so he came out on um, January 1st of 1863, thought supposedly 10 minutes after midnight, and, and signed his claim. And so the National Monument, or I'm sorry, the National Historical Park, it was renamed recently, actually is set on his homestead, his 160 acres. And um, when he came out here, he was uh, a farmer, and so he was you know, growing crops, corn and wheat and whatnot. And um, today the, um, the National Park Service has reclaimed most, most of that land as a uh, tall grass prairie which once grew across much of the Midwest. And so um, you've got this, this prairie grass coming up. And, you know, when they talk tall, um, I'm told that uh, at the height of its growth in the summer, it, it could be five or six foot tall. Wow. And yeah. just, just not to confuse it with the Tall Grass Prairie National Preserve uh, further south in Kansas. Right. Um, the same but different. <laughs> And so they've got this, um, they've got this, you know, trails cut throughout, and it's actually just mown grass trails that lets you walk through the prairie. And boy, the birds are just alive and singing and chortling and cawing, and they're all over the place. I mean, there's a lot of life to this landscape, and you've got all these different wildflowers that throughout the summer, you know, bloom at different rates, and so they really paint the landscape in different colors as uh, the summer months go on. And there's stories, of course. You know, the Homestead National Historical Park is a repository 
for people with stories of um, relatives who are homesteaders and they've got, you know, diaries and, and records of many, many, many people who took advantage of the Homestead Act. And one of the interesting stories that I'm trying to develop is on the, um, the freed slaves who took advantage of the Homestead Act to get their land. They got out of slavery, and now they, they wanted to make something of themselves, and they wanted to have some land that they could call their own. And so they used the Homestead Act to make that possible. And then another interesting story, which I'm also looking into, is what about the Native Americans, the Indian, the tribes who were displaced from their homelands, which you know were their homelands for thousands of years? And how did the Homestead Act affect them? You know, did any of them try and buy back their lands? And and the irony of having to do that. And so that's that's one of the, the themes that um, the, the Park Service is looking into here, and I'm, I'm trying to um, tease it out as well to, to get some, some details. I mean, so, you know, you've got all this these fascinating aspects of coming to Homestead National Historical Park. You, you've got, you know, if you're a birder, it's a great place to come to, to add to your life list. If you're into wildflowers, boy, I tell you what, you know, you'd want to spend the whole summer here because of the different cycles of wildflowers that coming coming up and of course you know american history whether it's you know the the americans who took advantage of the homestead act to settle the west whether it was uh, the, the the slaves the freed slaves who used it to to gain their freedom to help um move on beyond gaining their freedom and and settle settle down and then of course um you know the native american angle and so you know the mormon church um the church of latter-day saints um has a genealogical repository where you know wherever you you're from you can search that and try and learn more about your your ancestry just like uh, ellis island at uh, statue of liberty national monument has a, a repository of information that you can search your family's background and here at homestead national historical park if you know that you know your forefathers and foremothers um were homesteaders you can research that at the National Park, either by coming to the National Park, or I believe you can go to their website and research it online. Fantastic. I was curious, going back to the freed slaves, I, like you said, they were eligible to take advantage of the Homestead Act, and many did. I wonder if it was more of a difficult process for them, you know, versus other folks that um, were trying to get some land through that process. That's part of the story that I'm researching, Lynn. I, I believe that you had to be a U.S. citizen. So, of course, you know, what process you had to go through once you, you escaped the, the bonds of slavery to prove that you were a U.S. citizen. I'm not familiar with that. And, you know, it's definitely something I should look into because I didn't know. I don't know the, the process, to, to put it bluntly, at this point in time. But apparently, you know, there were, there were tracks in, uh, in the South, that they could homestead in Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia. That probably made it pretty difficult. And um, the ostracization that they faced, the, the discrimination that they faced, the racism that they faced, it's an ongoing project that the, the Park Service staff here is developing. And um, it's going to be interesting to see the, the many chapters that uh, that research produces. So all in all, Homestead National Historical Park was a pretty interesting place for the nature and the history. 
Yeah, I would I would definitely recommend it to anybody, and and not just because it's a, a unit of the national park system. Um, it's it just got so much to offer here. And one thing that I'm really <sighs> regretting, I haven't been able to make. Lynn, you're going to find this amazing, but apparently over Memorial Day weekend they have a fiddle contest, and I've been wanting to come out to that fiddle contest for a long time. And you know, being a, a wannabe fiddler, I think that would just be fascinating to watch. And when is that? I believe they told me it was around Memorial Day weekend. Oh, so it's it's too late for this year. Just missed it. Well, it gives you a whole year to brush up on your fiddle and maybe participate a little bit. Absolutely. Sure. I'll be right there. No problem. Put a tin cup out and see if you get some tips. (laughs) Get run out of town. (laughs) So I'll be back with Kurt Repenshek, National Parks Traveler Editor, who's on the road in Nebraska after this short break. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. And I'm back now with National Parks Traveler Editor Kurt Repenshek, who is on the road reporting from some of our national parks and monuments with more to tell. Well, in the coming weeks, you're hoping to uh, go to a couple of other places too, including Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve in Kansas. That's right. Um, you know, part of the impetus for making this road trip was uh, a family um, wedding in Iowa. And so from uh, Homestead National Monument, uh, I, I headed off to Iowa um, for the family wedding. And um, 
And so, you know, this podcast is, is running on, on Sunday, the, the 26th of June, and we recorded it a few days beforehand. Um, on the 26th, uh, as you guys are listening to this, I'll be driving um, from Iowa into Kansas, heading west back to Utah. And my first stop is going to be Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve, um, another unit of the national park system that I've long wanted to go to. It sounds interesting, and you will definitely be a tall grass expert by the time you arrive, <laughs> <laughs> and by the time you leave, too. You know, um, what what really interests me, aside from the uh, bucolic setting, is, uh, you know, I'd, I'd written a book a, a few years ago about bison on the landscape, and, you know, the bison were part of the tall grass prairie and part of the short grass prairie, and... Um, at Tallgrass Prairie, not only do you have a remnant Tallgrass Prairie, as it once was, but also the, the Nature Conservancy um, has a bison herd there, manages a bison herd. So, you know, I've written about it, and to be able to stand there in the prairie and see the two side by side is is really um, enticing um, to me. Um, yeah, because it really see. paints a picture of what the landscape was like 150 years ago. And, yeah. uh, you know, gives you uh, an aspiration that other, well, many other pockets of the country will be turned into to natural preserves for bison and other wildlife. I know efforts are going on right now as we speak, and, and many places do have pockets of bison in their natural habitat, uh, but it seems like we can't have too many. No, no, I wouldn't think so. And to, you know, it's one thing to, to read about it and one thing to watch it on television but to be able to go out on a landscape and, and see them in action, so to speak, the waving prairie grasses, uh, the bison doing what bison do, um, it, it's really pretty interesting uh, from my perspective. And, um, you know, the, the whole ecosystem and, and, you know, how it's been repaired there and can we duplicate it in other places? You know, there's... Up in uh, Montana, the American Prairie Reserve, which is a, a, a large effort to transform a lot of the landscape that's been farmed or ranched back into what it was naturally with the shortgrass prairie and the tallgrass prairie. And, um, you know, they've got bison on the landscape and it's still a, a work in progress. But um, I think when it's all said and done, they're hoping to have a a bison herd of 10,000 bison. And when you bring that many animals back, you know, you've got a lot of um, associated wildlife that comes back. A lot of the the, the prairie um, birds, um, prairie dogs, they, some believe there's a, a, a um, relationship between prairie dogs and, and bison in that, you know, the, the bison graze and they, they, they cut down the, the prairie grasses to a certain amount and um, they, they green up again and the, the prairie dogs come along and, and like to nibble on the, the fresh shoots and whatnot. You know, up there at American Prairie, they've told me that, you know, they've had grizzly bears in the vicinity and wolves coming down. So, you know, it can be done. We can turn the clock back to a certain degree. I mean, certainly it's not going to happen on a large scale, but if we can... Um, protect and preserve some of these aspects of natural America. I, I'm, all, I'm all for it. Me too. So from Tallgrass Prairie, where do you go from there? 
You know, my next stop um, is going to be Fort Larned National Historic Site in western Kansas. And this was a, it was a post-Civil War era or maybe Civil War era fort that continued on after the Civil War um, on the so-called western frontier. And as I understand it, um, it is the, the best preserved fort of that era. Um, I've often been to Fort Laramie National Historic Site in Wyoming, and as fascinating as it is, it's, it's a little disappointing because it's um, not in pristine condition, um, whereas um, Fort Larned, from what I understand, is if it's not in pristine condition, it's pretty, pretty darn close to being complete. And uh, I, I heard that at certain times of year, you know, they'll, they'll fire up the wood stove and they'll be baking fresh bread there like they did for the military or they'll be baking pies as they did. And uh, so I'm just really looking forward to being able to compare my experience at, at Fort Laramie with uh, the experience at Fort Larned and, and understand, you know, how, how the Park Service interprets that site and how they have managed to... Um, preserve it in its in its condition. I, I understand that the chief ranger has roughly 50 years at that park. Probably not as chief ranger for the whole time, you know, but, but still, I bet you he's got some stories to tell. I bet he does. Well, Kurt, I hope you have a great trip down into Kansas, and uh, we're going to look forward to, you know, reading some of your articles about these trips because they sound like really fascinating places, a lot of history. Uh, a lot of interesting things happening in those parks, and I'm glad you've gotten to to get a few under your belt to to experience them personally and uh, enjoy them as much as you have been. Sounds great. Oh, it, it's been a, a fabulous trip so far, and uh, I'm, I'm sure that what's what's up ahead is going to be fascinating too. And you know, the best thing, Lynn, about being able to to take this time to get out into the parks and and meet the rangers and and staff and and whatnot is. It's not just one story. I mean, I'm coming away with you know multiple stories from each place, whether it's going to be a written story or a podcast interview or a, a video presentation. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to putting them all together. And uh, it's what we hope to do on a, on a more regular basis. I mean, obviously, it takes a lot of resources in, in terms of uh, getting out on the, on the road and $5 a gallon gas and whatnot. But um, I, I think these are really important stories that, that need a little bit more exposure and um, we'll see. I'm, I'm really excited. And, you know, whether I'll go directly home from Fort Larned or um, looking at a map, um, if I keep going west towards Utah, I just might stumble upon Great Sand Dunes National Park and Preserve, which is another unit that I've never been to but have always wanted to go to. Yeah, looking at the map, there's all kinds of uh, national monuments and national parks going west through Colorado, so <laughs> you may well, never get ben, home. Bent's Old Fort, um, the um, Sand Creek Massacre site, um, Great Basin, Mesa Verde I've been to, um, Colorado National Monument, I haven't been there, Black Canyon and the Gunnison, I haven't been there yet, so there's there's never never enough time to take in all these places. Well, it's great that you're being able to hit so many on this trip, and uh, you tell the story so well, so we look forward to all that. And um, safe travels on the way back through um, Kansas and Colorado into Utah. Thanks, Lynn. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, who knows, maybe one of these days I'll see you in the parks. I hope so. <laughs> That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. 
Next week, we'll pay a visit to Scotts Bluff National Monument in western Nebraska. For National Parks Traveler, this is Jess Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.